Beloved congregation, we just read together from Matthew 4, 23, that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What must that have been? What an extraordinary experience that must have been to hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who preached the gospel unlike any man has ever been able to preach the gospel. For the people of Israel, the people of Galilee, it was, an it was such an astonishing experience that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read these words, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And remarkably, one of the sermons that he preached has been recorded for us. And Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been directed to record it for us in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The famous Sermon on the Mount. The reason it is called the Sermon on the Mount is because on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee is where Christ would have, would have been seated on a slight elevation uh, at a location that would have been very favorable for the multitudes to hear him preach the Word of God. Hence, it is called the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, what must it have been to sit there to hear the living Word, the eternal living Word of God Himself, the author of the Scriptures, to expound His very own Word. Because that's what He did in the Sermon on the Mount. The people had never heard anything like it. They had been mired in ignorance. The Pharisees and scribes had utterly distorted the message of God's Word. And now Christ begins His ministry by giving them a proper interpretation of the Old Testament Scripture, giving them a proper understanding of what the essential truths and doctrines of the Old Testament were. And what was his objective in preaching that sermon? Far too often, and you still hear it today, people misrepresent this sermon and its intent. Some would have us believe that the, the sole purpose of that sermon is to teach us biblical morality. Now, I grant you, as we will see, we can learn a great deal about biblical morality. Because especially as we work our way through chapter 5, we will see that Christ gives us the spiritual sense of the law. He teaches us the spirituality of the law. Others would have us believe that this is the blueprint for the millennium, when Christ comes and will reign on earth a thousand years. I believe that all of this is incorrect. We need to understand for what purpose Christ came into the world. What was the purpose of His preaching? Why did He go about preaching the gospel? Specifically uses the word gospel, the glad tidings of the gospel. Well, he himself said it, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
He was very conscious of the purpose for which he came. He came to save sinners. And all of his preaching and all of his ministry had this one objective, and that is to communicate his word in such a way to the people of Israel that they would understand the very need for his coming. Those poor people had been misled and misguided to believe that if somehow you could measure up to the standard of pharisaical righteousness, that you would be acceptable to God. As we will see a bit later on, how stunning it must have been when Jesus boldly declared that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what Christ does in this sermon, as we will see, he completely dismantles the whole false construct of the theology of the Pharisees and replaces it with the truth, with the proper understanding. So later in this chapter, when the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the spiritual sense of his law, why does he do it? Because the people of Israel needed to understand that they were sinners. They needed to understand that they were transgressors of the law. They needed to understand that it was not enough to merely observe the letter of the law. And we, we will hear it. He says, we speak. he says, you have been taught, they have told you, but I am telling you. So in other words, what Jesus is doing later in chapter 5, as the lawgiver himself, because he is the one who gave the law as the angel of the covenant at Mount Sinai, he is saying, let me tell you what I meant. Let me tell you what my law really means. And so the whole purpose the Sermon on the Mount was to convict the people of Israel that they were lost, that they were sinners, that they needed a Savior and Redeemer. That's why we will see at the very end in chapter 7, Christ in multiple ways calls his audience to self-examination because he realized that many of them were spiritually deceived. And so he begins this remarkable sermon by expounding for us who they are that really belong to his kingdom, thereby demolishing the false standards that the Pharisees had established. And so he begins, in a sense, he begins that sermon in a very positive way. He begins his sermon by declaring who are the blessed ones, by defining for us what true happiness is. Blessed are they, and then giving us all the Beatitudes that we have just read in your hearing. And so he lays the foundation for his entire sermon. And in those opening verses, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us an extraordinary description of what the true believer looks like 
It's the most extraordinary description in all of Scripture as to who a Christian is. There is no place in all of Scripture to which we can go in order to examine ourselves in light of that perfect portrayal that the Lord Jesus Christ gives in those opening verses. Because the structure of those Beatitudes is remarkable indeed. Because the first seven Beatitudes, verses 3 through 9, they form a perfect unit consisting of seven Beatitudes. Now, I think even our children know that the number seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. And so in those seven Beatitudes, Christ gives us a perfect portrayal of his people, a perfect portrayal by which we can examine ourselves. And Scripture calls us to self-examination. Scripture tells us that we are to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith, whether our faith is the faith that is wrought by the Holy Spirit, whether we truly belong to the people of God. And that's why Christ ends the sermon in such a solemn way by calling us to self-examination again. But that's true for the Beatitudes as well. So the Beatitudes, as it were, are a divinely ordained mirror in which we can examine ourselves. Now, you know, boys and girls, what's remarkable about a mirror is when you stand in front of a mirror, you see exactly who you are. When you stand in front of a mirror, you cannot adjust what you see. When we take pictures, we can Photoshop and we can make ourselves look much better than we really are. But not when you look in a mirror. This is Christ's mirror in which we can examine ourselves. As we will see, that that perfect portrayal, seven characteristics, seven distinctives of the Christian, that the first three deal with the inner disposition of the Christian, resulting in a hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled, and then how this manifests itself in the life of the Christian by being merciful, pure in heart, and by being a peacemaker. So that the fourth beatitude is literally the very center of that picture. It's like the axle. And boys and girls, you've all seen a picture of these old-fashioned wheels. And you have an axle and you have these spokes that all come together in the axle. Now you know that every spoke matters. You know that the spokes and the axle belong together. An axle without the spokes is not a wheel. And the spokes without the axle is not a wheel. No, they need to be interconnected. And in former days, if through an accident some of the spokes were broken, your wheel would collapse. And so it is with this portrait. In other words, it is a complete portrait. It is a portrait in which every true Christian should be able to recognize himself. It's a complete portrait, and what I mean by that is that when we go through the Beatitudes, we can't pick and choose and say, well, 
Maybe I can connect to that one. No, this is all or nothing. So in other words, when we become a new creature in Christ, all of these marks will manifest themselves, not perhaps as clearly or as pronounced as in others, but in principle they will all be there. And so then, of course, we realize too that the order of them, as we will see, the order of them is very significant. There's nothing arbitrary about this description. And so we will see, as we work our way through these Beatitudes, is that each Beatitude builds on the previous one. And so it's sequential. And then finally, in Beatitude number seven, we come to the bottom line of the entire portrait. When Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers, this is a, the culmination of all the other Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, being mourners in Zion, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, and then peacemakers as the bottom line. And they, they shall be called the children of God. So this is the portrait that Christ gives us, the perfect portrait. And so with God's help, what I want to do today is I want to give you the big picture. Today I want to look at all of the Beatitudes. I want you to understand the structure of the Beatitudes. Or to put it differently, today we will look at the whole forest, if you will. And then in subsequent weeks, with God's help, we will begin to look at each individual of these Beatitudes. And so with God's help then, we want to look, first of all, we have read the nine Beatitudes. I'm not going to read them again. You can do that yourself. First of all, I want to look at the core activity of the Christian. The core activity, the axle around which the spiritual life of the Christian revolves at all times. And what is that? That's verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. As we will see, this is Christ's profound description of the life of faith. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled with that for which the Christian hungers and thirsts. So that's the axle. That's the core activity. Secondly, then we will look at the internal disposition of the Christian, expressed in Beatitudes 1, 2, and 3. In other words, why is it that the Christian hungers and thirsts after righteousness? What is the, the disposition of the Christian that makes him hunger and thirst after righteousness? Then thirdly, we will look at the external disposition of the Christian. In other words, how does this manifest itself in the life of the Christian? What does the life look like of one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness and who is filled? And then Christ gives us three essential components, as we will see. He said, the Christian is someone who is merciful, is someone who yearns and desires to be pure, who yearns for holiness, holiness of life, 
and who is a peacemaker, who aims at living in harmony with his fellow men. That's how this manifests itself. And what's also remarkable, and I will highlight this time and again, is that there is a real connection between the first three and the last three. In other words, those that are poor in spirit will be merciful. Those that mourn over sin will be pure in heart. Those who are meek will be peacemakers. And all of this revolves around the axle, the centerpiece of those Beatitudes. So let's begin at number one, the core activity of the Christian. Righteousness. What do we mean by righteousness? Well, boys and girls, even you can figure this out. You can take a a careful look at the word righteousness. And you will see the word right. That which is right. And so when the Bible talks about righteousness, it talks about that which is right in God's eyes, that which is right according to God's standards, that which measures up to God's standards. And God's standard is the only standard that counts. And when we get to the beatitude, I hope to say much more about it. But one thing we can say, that when God created Adam and Eve, everything was right. They were a righteous people. They had a right relationship with God, and they lived a righteous life. They lived according to God's standard. And that righteousness we have lost in our deep fall. We are now born as unrighteous sinners. We now are born as human beings who no longer live according to God's standards, who now fail to measure up to that which is right. As we will see, it is the Spirit's work to confront us with that reality. And we will see how that inner disposition that Christ describes here is uniquely designed to make us realize who we are in the sight of God. To make us realize that we don't have any righteousness. That we are unrighteous in the sight of God. What an unsettling experience that is. When we see ourselves the way God sees us. And yet until we see that, until we recognize that, we will never hunger and thirst after the righteousness that we need. The righteousness that God requires. Because God did not change. His standards have not changed. A righteous God loves righteousness and requires righteousness. But then you see the work of God's Spirit is such that we will recognize that not only I have no righteousness of my own, but we begin to hunger and thirst for that righteousness which God has provided through His only begotten Son. The righteousness which God requires, not only, but which God has provided through His Son. And you see, when that dawns on us, then that righteousness, or 
actually more specifically, then the Christ of that righteousness will become so precious to us, we will begin to hunger and thirst. And very quickly here, Christ uses a remarkable analogy. There's not a human being here today that cannot relate to hunger and thirst. They are, they are the two most basic desires of a human being. And God created us in such a way that in order to sustain our bodies, we hunger and thirst for that which we need in order to sustain our lives. And so spiritually, the Spirit of God will work this intense yearning in our soul for that righteousness. And the yearning is of such a nature that we cannot be satisfied but with that righteousness which God provides in His only begotten Son. So actually we could say that that central beatitude, that core beatitude, focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could actually say, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after Christ. Blessed are they who yearn after Him. Blessed are they who cannot be satisfied with anyone other than Christ. That's how the Holy Spirit works. You know, the analogy of the key that I've used. By nature, the key of the gospel does not fit our hearts. But you will see the Holy Spirit, that's, that's the, the focus of that inner disposition, one, two, and three. He, he literally makes room in our hearts so that the key of the gospel will fit precisely, that Christ will be that key that precisely fits the need of my heart. Because those that hunger and thirst after Him and after His righteousness they will not be disappointed, but they shall be filled. So let's now focus on the internal disposition of the Christian. What is it? What disposition of heart is it that causes the Christian to so intensely hunger and thirst after righteousness? By the way, I want to highlight, and I will do it repeatedly, it's very significant that all of the Beatitudes are in the present tense. Look at it. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Why is that important? Well, the present tense in Greek, as you know, means that something is continually and something is repetitively true. So what that means that all of these distinctives that Christ gives us here in the Beatitudes, that they are always true in the Christian life. They are always applicable to the Christian. So that means that during our entire journey, we will be poor in spirit. We will mourn over sin. We will be meek. We will hunger and thirst after righteousness. We will be merciful and pure in heart and will be peacemakers. That's an abiding reality that is continually true. And it's important to realize. In other words, we may not read the Beatitudes as if Beatitude number one marks the beginning of spiritual life and then finally we arrive at number seven. 
No, this is a composite picture. This is a complete picture. It's like the, the, a photograph, if you will. And you know, when you look at a face, all of the features together make the face. All of the features together make the portrait. And I want to emphasize that over and over again. This is a complete portrait, a complete portrayal of the Christian. So Christ begins in a most surprising way. Blessed. And that word in Greek means supremely happy are the poor in spirit. You will say, that sounds like a paradox to me. Happiness and being poor in spirit, how do those two go together? This was certainly contrary to what the Pharisees were teaching the people. They basically, what they wanted people to believe, that real happiness was if they resembled them. They viewed themselves as the ultimate standard of righteousness. But Christ is saying, true happiness, abiding happiness, begins by being poor in spirit. Notice, it doesn't say, blessed are the poor. No, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who are aware of their spiritual poverty. We could say this is the foundational requirement. This is the entrance requirement. This is a foundational mark of grace. Because congregation, without recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, without recognizing how destitute we are, we will never see our need of a Savior. We will never yearn for that perfect righteousness that God has provided in His only begotten Son. There are two words for Greek that can be translated as poor. One describes poverty in general terms. This could be a person who is really struggling to make ends meet and who lives under rather dire circumstances. But there is another word that means absolutely destitute, absolutely void of everything. That's the word Christ uses. Blessed are they who recognize how destitute they are in the sight of God. A congregation, it's that awareness, because we, are all, we all are destitute. We are born completely destitute. We are born spiritually bankrupt before God. But by nature, we are blind to that bankruptcy. We are blind to our spiritual poverty. We're blind to our sinnership. And because we are blind to our sinnership, we are blind to our need for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in order for us to see our need of Him, our eyes need to be opened. And we need to be confronted with our spiritual bankruptcy. But, and I hasten to add, that discovery has a purpose. In other words, the Holy Spirit never uncovers that spiritual poverty to us and then leaves us there. 
He does it for a reason. And so there is no salvation, there is no comfort in recognizing how poor you are, how destitute you are. If our spiritual life never gets beyond that, then we don't fit this picture. No, we have to connect, we have to realize this is one of the spokes that leads to the axle. This is the means whereby the Spirit of God will show us that we need a Savior, that we need Christ and His righteousness. Jesus said it Himself in Matthew 9, verse 12. They that be whole, they that are healthy, need not a physician, but they that are sick. Boys and girls, you can understand that. I realize that some of you are sick. Some of you are having some um, miserable bug you're dealing with. And when you are sick... You begin to yearn for health, health which we take for granted. So Christ is saying people that are healthy don't need a doctor, but those that are sick. Our problem is we are sick. We are deathly ill. We are spiritually bankrupt. And we need to be shown that by the Holy Spirit. Because then, you see, we begin to realize our need of that great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Psalm 9, verse 18, we read this, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And in Psalm 132, verse 15, I will satisfy her poor with bread. There you see the other part of it. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Ah, that's, that's why the Spirit is doing this. It's to make room in our hearts and lives for that blessed bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. His goal is to bring us to Christ. Not only once, but during our whole life. Because congregation, the Christian, will never get beyond being poor in spirit. As a matter of fact, spiritual growth means that the Holy Spirit will slowly but surely show us more of our spiritual poverty, of our spiritual bankruptcy. And that's going to be a very painful and very unsettling experience, but a very necessary experience. Because why does he do that? in order to teach us more and more about Christ, to teach us more and more about the unsearchable riches that are to be found in Him. And in proportion that we see our own spiritual bankruptcy, the more beautiful and the more precious and the more lovely the Lord Jesus Christ becomes. So the Holy Spirit will see to it that his people will never move beyond this beatitude, that our whole lifetime he will show us who we are and remain in ourselves so that we will continually, that's the idea, present tense, that we will continually hunger and thirst after Christ and after his righteousness. But you see, this recognition of our poverty is not just a cold, calculated conclusion, an intellectual recognition. It's not like my father once visited, and again, this man wanted to impress him, and he said, oh, Reverend, he said, last night we were together, and for three hours we had a delightful conversation about our misery. 
My father said, brother, then you don't know your misery. Because how can you have a delightful conversation about your misery? No, you see, this awareness of who I am, of who I really am, will cause me to mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. Here we see the sequential nature of the Beatitudes. And so in this mourning, we see the emotional response of the Christian towards the recognition of his spiritual poverty. It is something that causes him to grieve. In other words, a true Christian doesn't just realize he's a sinner, but it it grieves him that he is a sinner and will remain a sinner until his last breath. We never get beyond that. You see, again, Christ uses the, the, the selection of vocabulary is remarkable. Because again, there are several words that could be translated by mourning. But the one he selects is the mourning of someone who has lost a loved one. Someone who stands by the graveside weeping because they are committing a loved one to the earth. Now, others around them may be mourning too. They may have been friends or what have you. But they will not be mourning as the loved one. So this mourning is fueled by love. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And the Christian mourns over sin because he loves God. And because he loves God, he loves his word, he loves his testimony. And so the Christian grieves over the fact that time and again, He offends the God whom he loves. He mourns. He mourns. Listen to the Apostle Paul. In Romans 7, there you have an accomplished Christian, a man of God who knew so much about Christ, but who never moved beyond this, and who cries out in holy despair, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But it says that we will see those who mourn in that way. So it's not just conviction, you see. People can be convicted about wrongdoing without mourning over it. The Christian mourns, he grieves over his sinnership. That's why my father said to this man that if you, if you were able to have a delightful conversation about your misery, then you do not know your misery. But they that mourn, they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. They shall be comforted with the comfort of the gospel. And that's the comfort the true Christian yearns for. In Psalm 69, verse 29, we read, But I am, listen carefully to the language here, but I am poor and sorrowful. There the two are connected. I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, Christ, let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. So the Holy Spirit, our whole lifetime, makes room for that comfort. So works in us. That again and again we yearn after Christ. We hunger and thirst after Him and His righteousness. 
That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There you have it. Mourners who experience that comfort. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As having nothing, being poor in spirit, and yet possessing all things, namely the righteousness of Christ. Poor in spirit, mourning. And then comes the next one. Blessed are the meek. That's often a misquoted beatitude, taken out of its context. What is meekness? Let me be very brief here. It's a rather difficult word to define. But I believe that the correct definition is that a meek person is a person who sees himself the way God sees him. And because he sees himself the way God sees him, he takes his proper place before God. And that's in the dust before God. Our proper place before God. So not only do we realize how bankrupt we are and we grieve over it, but it brings us in the dust before God. We hear that in David's confession in Psalm 51. He, worried, just not, just, he doesn't just say, I have sinned. He says, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. A congregation. And this all belongs together. You see, these all belong inseparably together. So when I take refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ time and again, it's because I realize who I am, remain in myself. And I take my proper place before God. Because also the Christian, when we repeatedly take refuge to Christ, every exercise of faith, every renewed exercise of faith flows out of that disposition. Time and again, I have to become before God who I really am. And our problem as Christians is often this, and I include myself. Why are we sometimes so reluctant? to confess our sins because we think too highly of ourselves. Somehow we think that we are doing quite well and then all of a sudden we fall flat on our faces. Now we're back to ground zero. Sinners. And again, we have to come before God, bankrupt, grieving over our sin, humbling ourselves before God. You hear that meekness in Abraham in Genesis 18, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. There's a, there's a man who sees himself the way God sees him. There's a man who takes his proper place. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so that meekness will manifest itself in genuine humility. Because when you are in God's presence, when you see yourself the way God sees you, that's what produces genuine humility. And it's that combination of these three, this who are all organically related, it's that disposition 
which over and over again brings me to the feet of Christ. It is that disposition that causes me to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cumulative effect of those three over and over again will be, give me Jesus or else I die. And that's the goal of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian desires to grow spiritually. If you don't desire, there's something wrong. But again, I quote my father who said, we all desire spiritual growth, but we don't necessarily approve of the ways that God uses to make us grow spiritually. And this is God's method. This is the Spirit's method. And that's why I said these are in the present tense. This is always true in the Christian life. Then, of course, as we will see when we expound the fourth beatitude, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just make us hunger and thirst after Christ. No, He will satisfy our soul. That's His desire. His desire is not to keep us hanging. His desire is to fill us, to fill us to overflowing with that for which He has made us hunger and thirst. And so the Spirit's work, as I said, He he makes room for Christ because He wants to glorify Christ in your life. He wants to take out of Him and He wants to show it unto you. But you see, when we are filled to overflowing, with the grace and the love of God. When we are filled to overflowing with the wonder of God's mercy towards such a one as I am and remain. See, that will, that will spill over into your life. That overflowing will spill over into your life. And so then we see in the third place, the outworking of this in the life of the Christian. So that inner disposition that leads me to Christ over and over again then manifests itself, that inward grace, in other words, Beatitudes 1, 2, and 3, shows us what's going on inside the Christian, and that will manifest itself in a threefold way. That exactly corresponds with the inner disposition. So the life of the Christian corresponds with the heart of the Christian. And the first thing that Jesus mentions is to be merciful. I want you to realize that the three things he mentions, being merciful, being holy, and being a peacemaker, they all are descriptive of the character of God. So a child of God is someone who reflects the character of God. That's the point in verse verse 9. They are are called the children of God. The word that Christ uses there, huios, there's another word that means you are a child by birth. But the word that he uses here means someone who reflects his father's character. You know, Thomas Watson calls mercy the darling attribute of God. The attribute that is closest to his heart. 
Read Exodus 34, when Christ reveals his name to Moses. The very first thing about it that he says about himself is merciful. He's a merciful God. You see, when, when we are filled with God's mercy in Christ, when, when, when God satisfies our soul with that mercy, that spills over, you see. Then we become a merciful and compassionate people. When we recognize how merciful God is to a sinner like I am, a bankrupt sinner like I am, that fills me with compassion for my fellow man. Then I become desirous that my fellow man would experience the same mercy that I have experienced. Oh, then we become kind towards our fellow man. When that's real, when that is experientially real, that God has been merciful to me in Christ, I become so compassionate towards others. That's why in Luke 6, 36, Jesus said, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. And then beatitude number six, to be pure in heart. Notice what Jesus does not say. Blessed are the pure in walk, the pure in life. No, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. And so very quickly, what Christ is saying, real holiness begins on the inside. The holiness that manifests itself outwardly in the life of the Christian begins from within. It flows out of a pure heart. That's why the connection is obvious between mourning and being pure in heart. Because the pure in heart, they mourn over sin, they hate sin, they desire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. They yearn after biblical holiness. And so there will never be a new life unless there is a new heart out of which that new life flows. Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 1 John 3, verse 3. Listen carefully. And every man that hath this hope in him, what hope? The hope in Christ. Every man that has experienced that when he hungers and thirsts after Christ, he will be satisfied with that Savior. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so the pure in heart are those who have zero tolerance for sin. Zero tolerance for sin. I'm not saying that God's children don't sin. Oh, yes, they do. But they have zero tolerance for sin. That's why the godly will shed many tears over sinful thoughts and desires that no one else knows about except God. The pure in heart are aware that they're always in the presence of God. When a sinful thought arises, a sinful desire, it grieves them. They will mourn over that. 
They will confess it because they are pure in heart. You see, Christ is dismantling Pharisaic theology. The Pharisees said, all that matters is the outside of the cup. As long as the outside of the cup is clean. No, Jesus said, my people, they are pure in heart. They're not just pure on the outside, but that purity begins within. Zero tolerance for sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul, what he said about himself. Acts 24, 16. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is David. Psalm 139. There is the prayer of the pure in heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer of the pure in heart. And finally, they're also peacemakers. That's the most amazing of them all because by nature we are troublemakers. By nature we are rabble-rousers. That's who we are by nature. That's part of our fallen nature. But Christ says, my people are peacemakers. Notice, and I will expound that again when we get there. Christ does not say, blessed are the peace lovers. But blessed are the peacemakers. So the Christian is someone who takes the initiative. Who doesn't wait for someone else to come his way. A Christian is someone who takes the initiative to be at peace with his neighbor. To live in harmony with his neighbor. Again, this is the character of God. They are the children of God. They reflect their father's character. Because God himself is the great peacemaker. Through his son. And so when we are the children of God, Jesus says, you will also become a peacemaker. Listen to the exhortations of God's word. Romans 12, 18. If it be possible... As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. God has called us to peace. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. That's it. And so when we behave ourselves as troublemakers rather than peacemakers, we seriously discredit the work of God. And so what are we? Are we peacemakers or troublemakers? The grace of God transforms us from troublemakers into peacemakers. And so what Paul is saying, it may not always be possible to live peaceably with all men, but it should never be because of you or me. It should never be because I have not done everything in my power to live in harmony with my neighbor. Again, blessed are the peacemakers, not just the peace lovers. And so all of this together is the picture of the Christian. And then Christ says, And they who manifest this character, they who fit that description, they will be hated by the world. 
They will be persecuted for righteousness sake. The world has no problem with nominal Christians. But Christians who reflect the character of God, the character of Christ, they will be hated by this world. They will be persecuted for righteousness sake. They will be reviled and have all manner of evil said against them falsely. But make sure that we're not persecuted because we happen to have a nasty disposition. Because that's not persecution. Let's make sure that when we're persecuted, it is for righteousness sake. It's because we are reflecting the character and the disposition of God. And that's something the world cannot tolerate. It hates true Christianity. And we will see that increasingly in our culture. So we need to wrap it up for today. So what I plan to do, congregation, each week I'm going to send you a written copy of this for your own benefit. This is so foundational. If there's anything I want you to understand as a congregation, I want you to understand the significance of these Beatitudes. I've written a booklet about it called Christ's Portrait of the Christian. And each week I will share a chapter with you so that you can review it for yourself and use it also for the instruction of your children. Because this, this is the template. This is the blueprint of true spiritual life. And though Christians may vary in their character and circumstances and the manner in which God led them to a saving knowledge of his son, these seven marks are always true at all times in the life of every true citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so the question is, as you look into this mirror, do you recognize yourself? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Can you relate to this description? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over sin? Do you humble yourself before God? Do you hunger and thirst after Christ and his righteousness? Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Could it be said of you what Christ said of Nathaniel? Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Are you a peacemaker? For they shall be called the children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank thee that we could gather here this morning that we were privileged to listen to the Savior describing in a most extraordinary way who the citizens of his kingdom are. And Lord, we pray that as we examine ourselves in the mirror of that description, oh, that by grace, in some measure, we would recognize ourselves, that we could lay our heart bare before God and say, Lord, thou knowest who I really am. And Lord, we pray, therefore, that thou wouldst bless also the exposition of the Beatitudes for our spiritual benefit. And if we do not recognize ourselves in this portrait, oh, that our eyes would be open to it, lest we would deceive and delude ourselves, lest we would be a foolish builder, lest we would belong to those who profess the name of Christ and yet are not doers of his Father's will. 
Forgive our sins, both in speaking and hearing. Gather with us again in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.